You don't have to be a senior citizen. You don't have to have signs of Alzheimer's. The more of us that we get to participate, the better the chance that we're going to find something that works to treat these terrible diseases. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant, a certified caregiving advocate, and a caregiver support group leader. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, we offer some practical insights and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, and we all know that laughter is, in fact, the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Now, you know I never forget your wine. (laughs) You know, it seems like the more we engage with those who support caregivers as we do, the more resources we learn about. When we were caring for your dad, we didn't know much of anything about the research going on or the need for people to take part in clinical trials. I'm very grateful that we can now share this information with our listeners. Right. And I remember last year when you spoke at the International Dementia and Dementia Care Conference in Toronto, we met Dr. Philip McMillan of the UK and some of the other researchers that you spoke with. And I was very interested in his work, and that led to his being a guest on this show. And that brings us to today's guest. She's a gerontological nurse practitioner at the Georgetown University Memory Disorders Program and serves as a sub-investigator in clinical trial of potential new treatments for Alzheimer's disease. She also serves as a clinician in the Memory Disorders Program through the Department of Neurology at MedStar Georgetown Hospital, specializing in the assessment, diagnosis, and management of patients with dementia and related disorders. Welcome to the show, Melanie Chadwick. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful experience. This is actually my first co- podcast. I'm surprised I haven't done one before. Well, we're glad to have you. Welcome aboard. Thank you. So I think today, more than ever, people are looking for treatments, solutions, hope, a way to manage this growing issue of Alzheimer's and the other dementias, not only here, but throughout the world. So I know I'm fascinated by what you can share with us today, and I know it's going to really reach, uh, resonate with our listeners. I hope so, too. You know, your podcast really does focus on the caregiving role on many different levels and illnesses. But for caregivers of people affected by Alzheimer's disease, it has such a high physical, emotional, and financial cost. The demands of the day-to-day care, changes in family roles can be so difficult, and you know that firsthand, and that's why many of the caregivers listen to your podcast. So becoming well-informed about the disease is just one important long-term strategy that I wish to kind of enhance the listeners, for the listeners today. I know we walked into it thinking, oh, this will be difficult every now and then, but we've got this. And now I compare it to walking into a brick wall. I had no idea what was, how to manage it, how long it was going to be, how difficult it was going to be. And I ended up having migraines and panic attacks and all kinds of symptoms of stress. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the main reasons why we do what we do now, to help others so they don't walk into that brick wall. 
I'm very grateful that you you do that because uh, we need all the help <laughs> that we can you know get. That's for sure in the field that I work in. Um, so a little bit about what we do at the Memory Disorders Program. Um, just like you touched on in the beginning, is uh, focusing on new novel um, therapies for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we also offer uh, a clinic where we provide diagnostic consultations for, let's say, a local neurologist or a doctor who wants a second opinion, or maybe the family, you know, um, or the patient themselves uh, wants a better understanding of what's going on with their changing memory. Um, but Alzheimer's really, I like to kind of start with the, the history for people who you might not be aware because it's where our research is geared to kind of understand the history of Alzheimer's disease. Um, as many people know, um, Dr. Alois Alzheimer, um, it's named after him. Uh, in 1906, he had a very young female patient actually that had some mental changes. She had memory loss. She was having language issues. And when she died, he looked at her brain under the microscope. And what he found was these abnormal clumps, which we know now are called amyloid plaques. And he also found these tangled bundles of fiber inside of neurons, which now we call tau tangles. So it's really what has pushed our research forward is knowing where to kind of start, the, these plaques and these tangles. Um, so that's really the concentration um, of uh, pharmaceutical therapeutic drugs uh, in research right now for, for Alzheimer's disease. So um, these plaques and tangles um, are what we consider as scientists the, the main features of Alzheimer's disease. Um, these plaques and tangles cause toxic changes in the brain, inflammation in the brain, and when that happens, our brains, our cells and our connections, they're lost, they lose those connections and it actually has, as a consequence, unfortunately, neural death. And when that happens, we lose you know, all function of our brain. Um, so that's really where, it's nice to go back to the history to kind of know where we need to go you know, forward. So you've got this research going on and there's so many different types of dementias. And I'm just wondering, a lot of times, Everybody has their little puka or sandbox that they're in. I'm wondering if there's uh, any cross-pollination between anything that you're seeing going towards, say, the Lewy body folks. So, yes, that's actually a wonderful question. So we know by doing autopsies on brains, um, and we do them actually at Georgetown, uh, when we first diagnose um, Sometimes it's not always clear because once a stage becomes more moderate, a lot of the different dementias start to kind of merge and, and the symptoms look the same, although they might not look the same initially upon early diagnosis. So what we're finding is when we are looking at these brains under the microscope, we are seeing these tax plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease, but we're also seeing Lewy body, or maybe we're seeing some vascular component. So absolutely it crosses. Um, rarely do we see someone who has full Alzheimer's disease and no other entity um, associated with it uh, in the brain. So they can overlap, absolutely. Very. I know that some people talk about mixed dementia, which is that combination that you're talking about. Um, another thing that I, when you were originally talking about the history of Alzheimer's disease, that first, very first patient was a good bit younger than what people expect in Alzheimer's now. And that was one of the things that um, uh, 
Dr. McMillan talked about at that conference was we think of it as an age-related disease, but it's not necessarily that. Yes, so the majority of um, Alzheimer's disease is over the age of 65. Um, about uh, Right now we have about 5.5 million people diagnosed uh, with Alzheimer's disease. About 5% of that population are under the age of 65. Um, so it isn't just an age-related, you know, aspect as we uh, initially thought. And that's really, you know, another good thing about research is uh, we have a trial um, that will be upcoming hopefully soon. Unfortunately, uh, the pandemic has slowed uh, the, the enrollment of trials at this current time, um, but it is called the LEADS trial, and it is a longitudinal trial um, looking at early onset Alzheimer's disease. It is a two-year observational study. So that's what we need. We need to observe these people. Uh, this is a range from 45 years old to 64 years old. And we want to look at disease progression in people with early onset Alzheimer's disease. We will be collecting um, brain images, uh, blood samples, cognitive testing, because we don't know enough. Uh, we still have questions. And we really can't answer these questions without um, having people come into research and, and, and participate. Would part of that be that there are changes going on in the brain before symptoms are recognized? Yes. So scientists have um, explored very early steps in the disease that can be detected 10 or 15 years before the Alzheimer's symptoms even appear. So there are special PET scans called amyloid PET scans and tau PET scans, and they're primarily used in research. And we can look at the brains of healthy individuals without any symptoms, but maybe they came in because they have a family history or there's risk factors, or maybe they're starting to have some forgetfulness, but they're not sure if it's just age or not. Uh, when we look at these brains um, in, with these special uh, PET scans, we actually can see amyloid plaques or the tangles again, 10 or 15 years before they will develop a symptom, which is phenomenal because it kind of pushes our research in an entirely different direction. Uh, when we were doing research uh, 10 years, 15 years ago, we were enrolling subjects into trials who were already in the early to moderate stages of Alzheimer's disease. Now that we know that these plaques and tangles occur 10 or 15 years before they even get a symptom, that's that special time the sweet spot where we can observe these patients and put them into a research trial voluntarily, of course, and maybe have better treatments because we've caught it at a much earlier stage. So how does one get into a trial? If I'm not diagnosed, why would I go into a trial or what's the benefit of going into a trial? And is it any benefit to you as the researcher? of somebody going into a trial? So there are brain registries um, out there. Uh, one is the APT web study, and it is an online memory research tool aimed at kind of accelerating enrollment for 
uh, into uh, Alzheimer's disease trials by identifying people who might be at high risk. So for example, I could get on this web study, I take some cognitive tests about every three months, they might ask me some um, questions about my age or my race or you know any family history of Alzheimer's disease to, to get a sense of you know, biographical. Um, and then if the cognitive tests that are taken every couple of months, if there's a trigger that indicates that there could be a memory problem, um, then they would come into our research center and we would follow them and do testing on them a couple of times a year and they could accelerate into a trial if they wanted to uh, in the future. So I have my mother, for example, you know, in this and uh, some friends um, as well because they just like taking the tests online. They're easy memory tests. They think and they're getting a little bit of a cognitive assessment, you know, on a bi-yearly basis as well. And if they're interested, um, they can get into a trial. And could you send us a link to that? And we will put that on the Roger That uh, website. Yes, I have a couple of websites, uh, not only the APT web study, but there's Gene Match. There's a trial match also through the Alzheimer's Association. Um, there's healthybrains.org. So I'll be more than happy. There's a lot of brain registries. So I'll, I'll be more than happy to send you those. Great. Let's say somebody with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, looking to get in this, uh, into a trial, or is that beneficial looking at how the diabetes plays in or that plays into diabetes maybe? I don't know. Is that beneficial? So that's a very good question. So in any research setting, not only at Georgetown, we're looking for volunteers that are in the range between 50 years old and 80 years old. Uh, that one particular trial I told you about, the early onset Alzheimer's disease, that is particularly for 45 to 64 year olds. Uh, we're also looking for subjects who have um, a reliable study partner. So this is someone who spends about 20 hours a week you know, with them, um, and they would need to know this person very well because we would be asking the study partner questions about their activities of daily living and how well they're performing them independently or with supervision. And we're looking for people that are generally healthy. So you can have diabetes, you can have high blood pressure, you can have high cholesterol, but in the research setting, those um, illnesses uh, need to be managed. And by that, I mean they should be a stable condition uh, for at least three months before coming into a trial. So someone who is getting their medications adjusted um, continuously up and down, someone who's been in the hospital or in the doctor's office frequently for an unmanaged illness wouldn't be a, a appropriate candidate at the time. We would really need them to be what we consider stable, and that would be about three months of stability with any other outside illnesses or any medications that they're taking. Yeah, I've been caught a lot of things in my life, but stable isn't typically one of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me ask this question. Someone like myself, um, next month I'll be 71 years old. I'm very healthy for my age. I don't have a history of Alzheimer's or dementia in the family going back as far as I know. Would it benefit someone, your trials for someone like me? to be in a study. 
So yes, we have a uh, study. Um, it's a longitudinal trial. It is being it is sponsored by Georgetown, not an outside pharmaceutical company or the NIH, for example. And it is uh, looking at um, healthy individuals coming in about once a year, maybe twice a year, and we would just do cognitive testing. We would interview their study partner. Uh, we might collect blood for uh, sampling just to look at health monitoring labs and make sure that they're healthy. We wouldn't be doing anything outside of that. Um, and then we would be also um, be doing some genetics, seeing if there is a genetic component uh, that would make someone at a higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. And again, it's just longitudinal. We're just observing over time. And that's really the only way we can uh, really you know, push through and gain more knowledge, you know, is to, to have people come into research. And it doesn't have to be in an experimental trial. It can be, you know, observational, just, you know, Melanie, you used the term longit longitudinal a couple of times. Um, explain to our listeners what, what that means, because frankly, I don't know. <laughs> so longitudinal <laughs> is we are collecting information over a time frame. Okay. So sometimes people are in longitudinal trials for one year. Um, I know the NUN study, for example, which is a study way back, that was a study that's been going on for more than 25 years. So um, it's, again, the, the long term because it's a time frame, really. Makes sense. To go back a little bit, just to the question I asked before this about, you know, a healthy senior citizen coming into the trial and over time coming in maybe once a year. And I think I'm doing fine, but my care partner said, oh, she's not as good as she thinks she is. I imagine that's part of why you want that care partner to be there. Is that true? Absolutely it is, because it also is part of the diagnostic criteria for Alzheimer's disease. So it's not just that there is um, a definitive uh, memory problem, but also that it is being conveyed by someone else. They're also seeing uh, that pattern as well. Um, and that also gets the ball rolling if they need further testing. So, you know, we kind of act as collaborators. So if someone comes into the research setting and although they're subjects, they might have a, a regular primary care doctor, you know, in the local community. Um, and with their permission, I can communicate with that local doctor and say, this is, you know, what we have found. This is the concern that I think needs to be further investigated. So it's the primary care doctor sometimes who kind of gets the ball rolling and, and orders certain labs or, or tests just to make sure that there's something else not going on. And do people pay to be part of these studies? Again, wonderful question. So no, <laughs> um, the majority of our trials are uh, sponsored by pharmaceutical companies in conjunction with the Alzheimer's Association, the National Institute of Aging, and it is fully funded by them. So the tests that we conduct, whether it is brain imaging or lab work or cognitive testing or physical exams, it's all financed by the pharmaceutical company itself. Um, some of our trials, we actually pay our participants, especially for the travel coming into Georgetown, um, or they might have to stay overnight in a hotel because they live further away, let's say in Delaware. So uh, some trials we do um, they're they're reimbursed. Not all of them, though. Mm -hmm. 
Now, could, say, a couple, like, say, Bobby and I, uh, both be a partner, but also a subject? Yes. If it was a prevention trial, and what I mean by prevention trial is that, again, these are, are, are healthy individuals who have not been diagnosed with a mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease, but might have a family history or high risk factor and want to be involved in research, uh, then their study partner can also, they might also want to be involved in research. Uh, we might have to do the study visits on separate days um, because of the testing and the questionnaires, because being a subject and a study partner, you kind of know what's you know, coming next. Mm. So separating the visits on separate days, uh, we have to do that sometimes. Very interesting. It would be more difficult to do, um, I think, research if you were a married couple and one had dementia and the other one was healthy uh, and, and, and both be subjects in a trial. Um, because again, we need a reliable study partner, someone who's going to remember things and tell, right. you know, uh, the history uh, in a very good way. So it seems to me that there's a there's a very wide range of people that can participate in these studies. Mm -hmm. And do you have trouble getting people to sign up for these studies? That's a wonderful question as well, because yes, <laughs> we do. Um, the, the first obstacle really, uh, which has gotten much better, is funding for Alzheimer's disease. Um, but that has improved. Um, the second obstacle really is getting the participants um, to participate. Um, but the benefits of the clinical trial, I think, really do outweigh the risks of participation. So this person has a chance to play a more active role in their own health care. They can gain access to possibly potential treatments that wouldn't be widely available to, you know, the, the community. Um, they're going to be receiving expert medical care, you know, from, you know, our institution as well on a more regular basis than they would if they were to go to their local neurologist or primary care doctor once a year. They might be seeing us once a month. Um, and again, they're, they're helping future generations um, uh, as well. You know, you said something about the drug companies the pharmaceutical companies doing some of the funding. And I guess, I guess it was about two years ago. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Bobby. Um, we went to a symposium and a researcher was talking about the drug companies weren't putting money into the research anymore because they haven't found anything and they spent tons and tons of money and there really wasn't anything. So are you saying that that's kind of uh, turned a corner back again? It has, um, and that really, that really came about um, through a pharmaceutical company called Biogen. Mm -hmm. So back in, and I could be wrong about the month, back in about May of 2019, uh, Biogen, a large pharmaceutical company, was uh, investigating uh, a, a monoclonal antibody. Uh, this is an intravenous infusion uh, to help uh, the antibody mimics our own immune system. So the goal is to reduce, the, again, these amyloid plaques in the brain. And uh, they had a independent data committee uh, come in uh, around October 
I'm sorry, not October, this was in May, and um, look at the data because they needed to find out, is this worth going forward? Because again, this one trial might last five to seven years and cost millions of dollars. And the pharmaceutical companies, rightly so, want to make sure that what data they have is worth continuing the pursuit. So the this independent data committee came in and, and looked at everything and said, you know what? This drug isn't any better than the placebo, I'm sorry. Uh, which was devastating to us because we were part of that trial at Georgetown. Well, it turned around that in, uh, in October when Biogen collected all of the data, because again, they just collected some of the data, they didn't have 100% of the data. When they collected all of the data, they learned that the drug actually was beneficial and it was reducing the number of amyloid plaques in the brain and people were, were having changes and improvements on certain uh, cognitive scales. And this was extraordinary. Uh, so the light bulbs came back on again and everyone got really ex excited. Uh, right now, that was a phase three study. And what that really means is there are phases of studies uh, really from zero to phase four. So phase three is pretty high up there. So they are now in the midst of getting it approved by the FDA, the, the Food and Drug Administration, and that's phase four. So we are kind of looking in that direction. Um, I don't see anything that's going to come out anytime soon. Um, the FDA is very thorough. Uh, as we know in research. So, you know, the T's have to be crossed, the dots have to be, you know, the I's have to be dotted. So uh, they're going to look very heavily, you know, into this before they just uh, have a, a, a new drug on the market for Alzheimer's disease. Because what we need to do is know the long-term effects of these drugs. Right. So that one drug I spoke of, Biogen, well, it's only been studied five years, maybe more than that, maybe five to seven years, if I'm not mistaken. But if someone's to take this medication, and possibly for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, what are the long-term effects of that drug? So we have to bring all of these subjects back into the trial now and, um, and observe them uh, to see if there's any you know, long-term consequences. Very interesting. Melanie, if you have, have one message that you really want to put forward to our listeners today, what would that be? I really do think by participating Participating in clinical research, um, uh, healthy volunteers, uh, people with early stage dementia, and caregivers can also take part. They really do help accelerate the progress and provide valuable insight into potential treatments and ways to, you know, to prevent Alzheimer's disease. Every clinical trial, you know, contributes to valuable knowledge, uh, whether or not the treatment works are helped. So that valuable knowledge is, is where we push for, you know, push the research forward. That's one of the messages that uh, the people in my local um, support group have learned. Uh, one of the women that are in there who is caring for her mom with Alzheimer's was part of a trial that was discontinued because it didn't work. But she still encourages everybody to go and participate in this because that's where we're going to find the answers. Mm -hmm. Just one, one quick question before we wrap up. So you said this Biogen drug, is it something that slows down the process or is it something that reverses the process? Yes. So it takes the timeline and the trajectory a little bit differently. So it modifies the progression of the disease uh, and 
but right now we don't have a cure. Um, the best we can hope for, I think at this point, is, is a better modifiable treatment so that trajectory of Alzheimer's disease slows much more than our current therapies on the market are doing now. Well, certainly you've given us and our listeners a whole lot of information and um, I certainly appreciate you coming on. I I found it absolutely a fascinating discussion. Wonderful. So if your listeners want to learn a little bit more about our program or the trials that we're conducting at, at uh, Georgetown, they can go to memory.georgetown.edu. And our entire program is there and they can see the different trials that we have. And again, Bobby, I will be more than happy to uh, email you those specific websites uh, that are brain registries where healthy volunteers uh, can, you know, if they would like to participate on some online cognitive testing, they can do that. We will put all of that on our, on our page. Wonderful. Make it easy for people to get to. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. I know. That was some uh, interesting stuff. Absolutely. And I think one of the most important giveaways is how much they need participants in these studies. And you don't have to be a caregiver, but you can be. You don't have to have signs of Alzheimer's, but you can be. You don't have to be a senior citizen, but you can be. Um, And the more of us that we get to participate, the better the chance that we're going to find something that works to treat these terrible diseases. Yes, and talk about a feel-good moment, at least for me. I was so, as you were, so disheartened uh, that at that symposium where they said, you know, the drug companies are pulling all their funding, that the funding is coming back and they're, they're making a concerted effort. Absolutely. And I didn't know such things as brain registries um, existed. And so, and we're going to have that information on, on our website. So that's a great takeaway as well. I didn't know there was anything like that either. And that you could do it online. You can find out more information about Melanie and the research she's doing on our website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that dot show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.